Welcome to another author's special of the British Broadcasting Century podcast. As we run up to Christmas, you might want to know what books to get on your wish list. Well, then your answers are here. We had three academic authors on the previous episode, three practitioners this time, broadcasters, presenters, producers. Unwrap this episode and you will find within it a present of three marvellous writers about Doctor Who, Religion on Radio 4, the Sunday programme particularly, and Music Radio from one of the leading DJs in Radio 1 and Radio 2 history, David Hamilton. Welcome to your latest author's special of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Hello, hello, I'm Paul Carenza. Welcome to this, the second and final, for now, of an author's special. So last time we brought you three marvellous doctors of academia, Doctors Carolyn Birdsell, Josh Shepard and Martin Cooper told us about the love of radio, uh, US public media, which largely is education via the airwaves, and radio's legacy in popular culture. So that is radio's mentionings in books and films and songs and the like. This time, three marvellous authors who all work in radio, uh, presenting and producing, first of all, Paul Hayes on Doctor Who, and then we'll hear from Amanda Hancocks, who is producer on Radio 4's Sunday programme. She's got a new book out all about that. And then music radio from a legend david hamilton david's appeared on the podcast on episodes 30 and 40 and we've saved back to this third and final installment for you here plus a guest appearance from bbc radio's mark carter and i think we'll have a commercial break as well you'll hear from ben baker talking about children's itv now our regular podcast will return in the new year when we dive back into 1923 and tell the moment by moment origin story of the bbc radio and life as we know it this is nothing to do with the bbc i should hasten to point out entirely independently run this is just me paul carenza bringing you much geekery about how things used to be and uh, yeah we'll continue back in the new year in 1923 the final days of Marconi House that's the first BBC studio and they'll be closing their doors to the Beeb as they move down to Savoy Hill plenty on that era to come so do stay with us after Christmas we'll have a bit of that our Christmas special the next episode brings you the first religious broadcast and my reenactment of that that's been joyous fun to do. But this episode then, as we build up to Christmas, you want to know what books to put on your wish list, don't you? To our Santa to stuff in your stocking. Well, three or four marvellous choices this episode. Plenty then to dive into. So, shall we? Let's... We like to tell this story chronologically, so we'll begin back in 1963, just celebrating its 60th anniversary. Doctor Who came into being on Saturday the 23rd of November. Not all Doctor Who fans, but a, a certain type of Doctor Who fan has an insatiable curiosity about how the series works, a desire to, to open up the bonnet and, and see what goes on in there and find out about the history of it. Now, previously on this podcast, we welcomed Paul Hayes, presenter and producer. He wrote The Long Game, 1996 to 2003, the inside story of how the BBC brought back Doctor Who. And now he's penned a new book called Pull to Open, 1962 to 1963, the inside story of how the BBC created and launched Doctor Who. It's published by Ten Acre Films. That's where you can get your copy. Link in the show notes. So let's hear, shall we, from Doctor Who superfan, presenter, producer and author, Paul Hayes. It is almost certainly the most studied 
British television drama series ever. That the, there are books and articles and documentaries on almost any aspect of its history that you care to mention. Now, elements of this interview may sound familiar to you. You see, I've not spoken to Paul about the new book. If I'm honest, I spoke to him about his original book, The Long Game, about the Doctor Who wilderness years. Uh, but there's plenty in that interview that I never actually included on the podcast because we just talked for so long about so many marvelous things. So, lots of new stuff here from Paul Hayes, and do make sure you get Paul Hayes's two Doctor Who books, The Long Game and his new book, Pull to Open, 1962 to 1963. The inside story of how the BBC created and launched Doctor Who. Derek Mashwitz, who um, uh, people usually say he was the head of light entertainment when he did this. He wasn't the head of light entertainment. He'd stopped doing that. But he was the uh, assistant and advisor to the controller of programmes. And in early 1962, Eric Mashwitz asked the BBC's script department under Donald Wilson um, to look at the possibility of the BBC making uh, a science fiction uh, programme. I mean, that's the, the very first document in the Doctor Who file is the script department's report that they prepared. Eric Mashwitz, sadly, Mashwitz's memo doesn't survive. But uh, when I was, when I was uh, researching Donald Wilson's life for an article I wrote about him, um, I, I was able to go to the BBC Written Archive Centre at Caversham and you know, opening this file that's got those original documents in and right at the start of the file is this report that Eric Mashwitz commissioned looking at uh, what sorts of things uh, you know, were popular in science fiction at the time. And uh, I think it was, uh, I always forget because it was a follow-up report and I always forget who did which one, but I think it was Alice Frick and John Braben who did the first one, I think. Uh, I think Donald Bull helped out with the later one. These are all members of the script department. But that report didn't directly lead to the creation of Doctor Who, but it was certainly looked at and used when, when the following year, they, they, the whole process of creation of Doctor Who kicked off, as it were. I seriously believe that there's probably nobody who's seen every episode of Doctor Who. I know there are one or two people who claim to, but I just, hmm. I just doubt that you would have never missed a single one of those 97 missing ones. You'd never have had to go to a family thing or a, or a, a church fate or something or a banal. And I, certainly if, if there's anyone who has seen every episode of Doctor Who, there'd be very, very few people. And my suspicion is nobody has seen every episode of Doctor Who. It's an odd thought, isn't it? It's an odd thought. Yeah. I was always a children's BBC viewer, always a broom cupboard viewer, and I always had this idea, I was a mere dot of a human being, that the BBC were the good guys and ITV was the enemy. And I don't know where I got this idea from. I mean, we weren't in one of those households you hear about where we weren't allowed to watch ITV. In fact, my mother was every inch the model ITV viewer, uh, watched their soaps and dramas. My mum was, 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 was bang on ITV target audience. Uh, but for some reason, as a child, I can only imagine this is because of Doctor Who. I can only imagine it's because I knew the BBC made Doctor Who. BBC were the good guys and ITV were the bad guys. And I had that idea lodged in my head. And it's still true today. Yes, indeed. Indeed. That's the Doctor Who thing. It makes you see see some, see some the good and the bad in people, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, final-ish question then, maybe. Uh, Russell T. Davis has resumed control of Doctor Who. Surely that's crying out for the, doc the TARDIS to visit 1922 and the launch of broadcasting, which I don't think they've done yet. No, um, wouldn't that be brilliant? They did do uh, Mark Gatiss wrote, wrote an episode for David Tennant's second season where they went to Alexandra Palace in the early, it was Coronation Day, it was oh, yes. Coronation yeah. Day, and um, The Idiot's Lantern, the episode was called. Mm, and uh, yeah. so um, they, they have done one looking at television, but no, yeah, it would be brilliant, wouldn't it? It would be perfect. Uh, additional note, Doctor's log timestamp during the edit process. Hello, it's Paul here. It's not uh, the Doctor. Indeed, I don't think that's even how they speak on Doctor Who. I think I'm thinking of Star Trek. Now, just an additional note uh, that as I'm editing this podcast... 
the new episode of Doctor Who has been just going out, and they have indeed visited the origins of broadcasting. Well, a few years in, just after the BBC has begun, Logie Baird and Stooky Bill is all on uh, the most recent episode of Doctor Who. That sort of timestamps when this podcast was made anyway. So there you go, having spoken to Paul Hayes a while ago now about will Doctor Who revisit the origins of the BBC, they sort of almost nearly have. But radio and Wreath is still up for grabs. Anyway, back to Paul Hayes. The plot line is Wreath is an alien. I'm sure he is. Uh, <laughs> the only trouble is, and the only sli- the only shame with that is, I think you'd be slightly too early for the police box to be mistaken for real police box. Which would be oh. shame. But uh, or true. maybe it could land in 19. 19- and maybe Gilbert Mackenzie Trench sees it there in 1922 and then thinks, oh yes, that'll do for that design I've been trying to come up with for that fucking police. <laughs> That could work. That could work. Let's write it's, it now, you and I. I think they make got it the happen. phone to Russell. It's, it's, it's not quite the same thing, but the Newcastle studio, 5NO, uh, when Reith visited there in, in uh, early 1923 to just check on how things were going, saw that the, um, the engineer not, not, wasn't behind some glass, but they had actually installed a, a telephone box, a kiosk in the studio itself. So this poor engineer just had to stand upright in a glass box controlling everything and being the engineer and just sweating buckets <laughs> couldn't go anywhere couldn't sit it's demeaning so you know the idea of a TARDIS appearing in a studio like that and just being a you know a second engineer's box perhaps maybe there's something in that I don't know time will tell and meanwhile you'll be telling us all about time uh, <laughs> yes. maybe tenuous cheesy link if I've ever heard one I have tried to tell the story in, in a way that all those books you and I and people listen to the, this podcast have loved down the years, which which tell the stories of early eras of the BBC. I've tried to make it as accessible and hopefully enjoyable as I can. If you'd like a copy of the book, it's available from the website of Ten Acre Films. Just look up Ten Acre Films, uh, and uh, and you'll find out how you can get a copy. So that is Paul Hayes, and that's Doctor Who. We move forward chronologically then, because in 1970, another show came along on the radio, this time in the area of religion, on Radio 4. Sunday, one of today's presenters is Edward Sturton. He's written this new book with Amanda Hancocks, his producer. Ed joined us on episode 52 to talk about his book, Auntie's War. And now he and Amanda have written this book, Sunday, A History of Religious Affairs Through 50 Years of Conversations and Controversies. I spoke to producer and author Amanda Hancocks. It started in, uh, actually in 1970, September 1970. Um, and it was the first religious current affairs show. And, and it was the only current affairs show on religion for years, actually. And you've written this marvellous book, which must have taken forever because it's decades worth of stuff, worth of content here. It took quite a long time. I think I think it, it took a, on and off over a year to do. I mean, not working on it full time, but, you know, over a year to do. Um, partly because of, you know, with archive books, you're, you're having to sort of try and find all the material. And that proved really challenging because, as you may have found yourself doing um, things about 100 years of the BBC and everything, um, the things that you think are in the archive actually aren't there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, OK. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, and because the way it works, because, of course, you know, originally, you know, people were cutting effectively gramophones, weren't they? And then it went to quarter-inch tape. And then eventually it's it's gone digital. But of course, they're all really very heavy items and they're very bulky. And so the BBC couldn't possibly keep everything. Uh, apart from that, a lot of it was live broadcasting anyway. So 
basically they had these archivists and it was up to them to decide what they kept and what they didn't mm. um and the trouble for us was we'd made this decision that we were just going to go for um what had been actually broadcast on the sunday program and not anywhere else and the trouble was that we found that if there was a really big news story um that was covered by all the news bulletins they kept the um the news coverage rather than the sunday program right was a bit frustrating so um people looking at the book there may be one or two things like the Salman Rushdie episode about satanic verses things like that which you would expect <clears throat> to be in the book and they're not because um there's no archive so um yeah, yeah. We, we we had on on the podcast um months ago now Simon Rooks who who was the archive one of the archivists the um, at the Written Archive Centre, and and he did the sound archive as well. And he, he was explained to us about how you know I think as far as he's concerned, you, you want to keep everything. And I think nowadays, mm -hmm. of course, that's much more the the intention. But yeah. he was saying back then, especially topical programs and radio topical programs, of which yeah. I guess Sunday fits into because it's sort of looking at yeah. the world through that religious filter, was yeah. often seen as passing transient and not retained in so many ways. I which is <clears throat> I know, which is a shame. But when you look back, you know, when it started in the seventies, of course. You know, religion was much more in the news than it is now. So you had things mm -hmm. like, you know, South Africa was bubbling along. So in, in the 70s, you had Sueto and all sorts of things. And um, Sunday had quite a lot of uh, African bishops on because they were the only ones who were able to stand up and effectively speak truth to power so um you know uh but then you know some of them were shot and killed and others had to leave the country and um so it was a really um you know turbulent time and then he moved to the 80s and you had terry Waite got kidnapped you know you had the storming of the golden temple in india you had of course pope john paul ii you know came in and of course he was jetting all over the world and suddenly religion became really interesting Mm. Um, and so it was great for Sunday because, you know, we were sort of right there in the thick of it all, really. So we came on air right at the right time, I think. What sort of BBC does this come into, do you think? In 1970s, you said it's the first religious affairs, current affairs programme with that religious lens. So before that, religion is presented rather differently on on the air, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it still had that sort of Rethian sort of thing about it, because obviously, you know, as you've probably talked about in other podcasts, you know, Reith had a very set view as to what religious broadcasting should be about. So um, up until then, it was very much largely worship programs, as we would call them, services, reflections. They did in about 19, in the 1940s, they introduced an interesting program called The Anvil. Um, because during the war, lots of people had questions about religion. So that was much more of a sort of discussion program, a bit like the Brains Trust. And bizarrely, the Brains Trust during the war wasn't allowed to ask any questions about religion. So they invented oh. the program. I know, I don't know why, but it was that's a very strange decision that was made. They brought in this program uh, called the Anvil. And it was uh, basically a presenter plus four people. And they invited the audience to... Um, to ask questions and so that, that's what they did in all aspects of everything they did try and do some form of newsy type program but it just didn't work because they didn't have the resources to do it and anyway I think it would have been quite a parochial thing because up until the 70s um you know as far as BBC was concerned and a lot of people in the country it was still a Christian country mm, yeah um and so up until then apart from you know the odd talk by the chief rabbi or or uh one or two other little sort of um 
multi-faith programs it was essentially christian broadcasting and and then the 70s come along and then of course there was uh, something called the annan report which came out which criticized bbc for not broadcasting more for other communities which had grown up in 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 you know the sort of last decade uh in the 60s and into the 70s and onwards um and they were licensed fee payers and therefore you know why were we not doing more for you know the hindu community uh muslims in the country etc and so therefore there was much more of a drive then to make it into what it is now which is much more multi-faith broadcasting in your book you say about the the founding producer colin semper and and mm. the um the first presenter i believe was was agnostic and that looks like a deliberate choice to all bonds yeah to, to break i think, away I think it must have been we, we don't know why he did it colin semper was very aware that religious broadcasting got into this wreathian ghetto and um needed to pull it out of that and so that was why he thought well we'll do current affairs i suspect they probably chose paul barnes precisely because he was agnostic because i think i think the bbc had always wanted to be and reith had always wanted to be sort of fiercely neutral in religious territory because as you know there are different denominations you know people have different it's so nuanced in terms of people's beliefs and and it would be very easy for the bbc to get sucked into you know, one tranche of Christianity over another. And so I don't know whether going for someone like Paul Barnes was a deliberate tactic to show that the programme was trying to be neutral. It was trying to cover a religion, but not take sides. Um, And so I think probably somebody who wasn't from a particular faith position would probably also find it a lot easier. And I mean, you know, David Winter, who who then took over the programme and became head of religious radio, he... um, you know, he was sort of saying this is the first time that, that anybody had, had turned the spotlight on religion. And so bishops and archbishops and other religious leaders had to get used to the idea that if they came on the programme, they would be asked um, difficult questions, you know, which they weren't used to having to deal with. And when you've got a specialist programme like that, if somebody sort of spouts out some sort of policy within the church or something, suddenly here was a presenter who knew what the background to all of this was and therefore (laughs) they could say yes but bishop you know (laughs) what about x or what about y you know and uh so yeah i think i think people found it quite difficult and it and it wasn't that it wasn't that the program was trying to be judgmental it was just trying to get to tease out the truth of something it's not a a a rose-tinted view of faith in the world at large it's saying these are tough questions that need to be grappled with in in not just today's world, but th- this particular week, it, it's it's hyper focused, isn't it, on these um, the, mm. seeing the news stories through that Sunday um, religious filter, which which I guess is maybe the secret to how it's lasted for. You know, there can't be many other programs that have been lasted for half the BBC's lifetime. And um... no, I think we're probably the same age. Uh, I was trying to work it out. I think I think the Today program started in the seventies or um, a bit earlier in the year. I think so. We're right. probably about the same age as the Today program. Although we're not part of news, news are quite generous in terms of allowing us to use correspondence and and uh, and, and freelance, you know, stringers in uh, in other parts of the world, and which is great because partly because we're also the first live news program that's on on a Sunday morning. Mm. So if some major catastrophe has happened, I mean, obviously, if it's we don't really touch um, secular politics unless it it sort of spills over into sort of social justice issues which churches or other religions are involved in but if you know there's been some 
huge humanitarian disaster or you know earthquake or something major has happened um you know mass shooting or something in, in another part of the world then then we will drop something on the program and cover it so when the london bridge uh, incident happened a few years ago and then i actually got phoned up um by radio 4 um because i think i'd actually gone to bed and because it, it happened quite late at night saying that this had happened and they wanted to take a little bit of our news time uh, of our time in order to run a longer bulletin piece and so I then had to wake up the producer and say right we've got to do something about this so um, we did manage to um, do an interview with the Dean of Southwark who lived almost opposite of course, where yeah. it was happening so we had to drop sections of the program in, in terms of dealing with it but I mean you hope these sort of things won't happen but mm. if they do happen, then obviously Sunday is able to respond to it. And that, that's one of the reasons why we've always stayed live as well. Well, I've always been a, a fierce defender of both sort of religious literacy and education and broadcast religious broadcasting. And then now, of course, we're having this conversation in the in the wake of the Middle East uh, crisis that if anyone need further evidence that we need that greater, greater understanding of religion across the world, it's it's there for us in the in the news headlines, isn't it? Really. So I think um, mm. you know the place of a show like like Sunday is is clearly vital. I think you know now we're in this really uh, in the wild west, as I call it, of the sort of social media age. It's quite frightening, really, and and it is you know the reason why things like BBC Verify have started and and um, newspapers have got their own sort of fact checking type. Um, sections in, in in their papers and everything because because nowadays there are no gatekeepers of the news uh or information in the way that there used to be you know like with the bbc in the 19 you know 20s 30s 40s whatever it was you know if you want to know what the news was you switched on the bbc or then itv or whatever read the times or whatever but now of course you can just read anything anywhere you have no idea who's written it Really, you don't know where they've got their information from. You don't know whether it's true or not. And so you hear all sorts of bizarre things that people, you know, think is going on in the world. And you're thinking that that is absolutely not true. <laughs> where have you got this information from? And so I think programmes like Sunday are quite important because um, especially when you've got conflicts, like you're saying, in the Middle East and other places where religion is is very fundamental to the driving force of why things are happening. But you get these spurious ideas of Jews believe this, Muslims believe this, Hindus believe this, Christians believe this, whatever it is, which is just completely wrong. And that sort of can set off all sorts of unrest in communities, you know, all over the world, you know, um, because people get these ideas and then they think, right, well, we have to defend our faith and then it all escalates. And so actually having places where if people want to they can come to and they can hear like the sunday program did the other week okay so this is the theology of hamas this is why they believe what they believe you know or you know this is where zionism comes from this is the whole purpose and why the state of israel was created and all the rest of it that actually you can find that on Sunday program and so I, th I think going forward you always get a bit nervous and you celebrate these big anniversaries don't you <laughs> how long are we yeah, going to yeah. survive but I, th I, I think going forward you need programs like this in order to be able to um, dispel all these myths because news hasn't got time to go into mm. such depth with stuff you know they're just reporting all the time on different things and so we complement in a way their output
I think. Absolutely. So this is Amanda Hancock. So you can get the book Sunday, A History of Religious Affairs Through 50 Years of Conversations and Controversies. Link is in the show notes. Amanda wrote the book with Edward Sturton. We'll hear more from her in a mo, but I think um, we'll have a commercial break. I mean, I know this is about the BBC, but it's not made by the BBC. So I see no problem with an ad, especially if I've invited it to be here. Ben Baker, who joined us on last year's Christmas special, he's got a new book called The Dreams We Had as Children, Children's ITV and Me. Want to hear more? Here's an ad. Hello there. Do you remember me? Yes, that's right. It's your dad. No, it's not. It's Ben Baker. Uh, and I was on the British Broadcasting Century podcast a few years ago, hawking my Christmas TV book. And now Paul has very kindly invited me to shill my new one. And spoilers, it's about the other side. Not ghosts or anything, no. It's about children's ITV. With the CITV channel closing in September 2023, I thought I'd pay tribute to 40 years of potty puppets, quirky quizzes and animated absurdities in The Dreams We Had As Children, CITV and Me. From Art Attack to Zap and other programmes that probably didn't feature Neil Buchanan, it's not the ultimate guide to old kids TV, but it's a bloody fun one. Find it now on print and digital via Linktree, linktr.ee slash benbakerbooks where you can find more information. So that was an ad and that was Ben Baker. His book on children's ITV, buy it now. Hey, speaking of ads, if you'd like us to feature an ad for you, you can. I mean, Ben didn't pay for his uh, because we want to feature authors on this episode. But hey, sponsor this podcast. Why don't you? We are up for business. We are for sale, essentially, uh, and we'll do just that for you. On a related note, we've never featured ads on this podcast until now, but I am starting to think that maybe, well, more and more podcasts are doing it, aren't they? I mean, have you heard podcasts? They, They often start with an ad and end with an ad and maybe even have an ad in the middle. I've never done it till now. I've resisted, but, um, well, I am considering this, um, income stream, dare I say, partly because, um, well, I need the money. And also because I had the vain hope that in developing this research project, I might be able to pitch some ideas to, for example, the BBC. And if I'm honest, I've pitched about three different ideas this year, and one or two very nearly made it and then haven't. So um, yeah, I'm thinking maybe of a different alternate funding method, maybe rather than trying to sell programmes to the Beeb, if they're not that interested, let's instead maybe look at some, will you forgive some sponsorship? I mean, ads happen, don't they? It's a fact of life. So um, if you particularly object to this, I feel like this is one of those notices you get on a lamppost near your house saying that parking regulations are going to change. If you would like to submit any moral or ethical objections to the placement of ads on this podcast, let me know in writing, paul at paulcarenza.com, or equally let me know if you won't mind them. Uh, thanks, because it could really help, actually, and then that way I'll be able to spend more time researching, producing, making these podcasts. And forgive me if I go a bit commercial. Anyway, that was a commercial. Oh, I better do some ads for myself while I'm here. Uh, If you enjoy this podcast, you can rate and review it. You could also find my Audible book, uh, Hark, The Biography of Christmas. It's a paperback as well, but I have narrated it and you can find it on Audible. Link in the show notes if you'd like to hear me unpack Christmas and tell you exactly why we do what we do every Christmas. Hark, The Biography of Christmas, available to read or listen to now. Link in the show notes. And a final plug, if I may then, uh, because it's my podcast, paulcarenza.com 
facebook.com slash tour has details of my live show, an evening of very old radio, back on the road next year. Do come and see it. And if it's not near you and you've got a venue near you, then, you know, I'm quite bookable and I'm also quite cheap. So, uh, yes, do go to paulcrenzer.com slash tour. Come and see me on the road and buy Ben Baker's books. Uh, buy my book, Heart the Biography of Christmas. My new novel, Auntie and Uncle's The Bizarre Birth of the BBC, will be out next year, but not this year. And that's so much commercialism, I now feel rather unclean. So perhaps best we delve back into religion on the radio with Amanda Hancocks, author of Sunday, A History of Religious Affairs Through 50 Years of Conversations and Controversies. I've sort of left the programme now because I left two years ago. Mm. And um, but to write, uh, to write this book, was it you have to write this book? I have to write the book and do other things as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was always very keen that Sunday was a bit like when the Sunday newspapers where you'd have the heavy news, but mm. you'd also have lighter, quirky stories. Um, so we did, I don't know if you saw the one about the, the harmonium that went up the Amazon which is one of my favourite. Oh, yeah, okay, yes. Uh, yeah, where yeah. they had Colonel Bushford Snell put an ad in the um, Church Times wanting organists who would go on an expedition with him up the Amazon, shooting rapids, you know, dealing with mosquitoes, high temperatures, blah, blah, blah. Um, and was anybody interested? And we saw this advert. We just thought, this is mad. So we did an item on it on the Sunday programme. And then he had seven people apply, I think it was, right. seven organists. So two <laughs> two of them happened to live in the north of England. So we got them to come into the studio after they'd been accepted on the on the trip. And um, they'd never met each other before until they arrived at the studio. One of them was an organist at a church in Manchester, and the other one happened to be a GP as well. And apparently when she phoned um, him up, uh, Colonel Bushford Stell up, and said, you know, I'm an organist, can I do this? And he said, oh, you're a doctor. No, I, I need a doctor. You'll have to be a doctor. And she said, well, I don't know anything about tropical diseases. So he said, it doesn't matter. You're a doctor. We need a doctor. Come on the trip and be a doctor. And so we said, well, do you, do you, is it right? You don't know anything about tropical diseases? She said, well, I do now. frantically <laughs> 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 learning well. all about them before they went. And they did it. They went They went Amazing. into uh, the oblivion Amazon jungle. And um, they strapped this harmonium to this, you know, canoe and shot rapids with it. And they took it to a group in this little indigenous community um, who happened to be Catholic. They built a chapel specially for this. And so there was obviously must have been some grand ceremony of handing it over. How it would have survived in that sort of environment, I don't know. Yeah. But they needed something without electricity. So because you Pedals, you see. Oh, okay. Air into it, you see. It's like so Religion is not always serious. As You've you had, know. <laughs> yeah, I, I've been on, I think I've been on two or three times, uh, at least, normally doing comic monologues about, it's, it's, I think it's always been when there's been a, a religious-based film in the cinemas, like when the Noah film oh, with Russell yeah. Crowe was on. And then doing just sort of, I don't know, a, a comic look at other Bible stories they could turn into Hollywood blockbusters and, and the like. So um, they were always fun to do. So it's it, it's a wonderful show. And here's to the next 50 years. Well, yeah. I, hope, I hope it does. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's been great to work on all this time. And mm. um, it just shows you that, that, you know, because religion sort of permeates a, a, your whole life, that actually you have a vast canvas of stories that you can, can cover, you know, which is which is great. Absolutely. Yes. Well, Amanda Hancocks, you produced it for many years. Ed, Edward Sturton presents it and you've both written his marvellous book, Sunday, A History of Religious Affairs Through 50 Years of Conversations and Controversies. Buy it now, people. Buy it now. 
So that's Amanda Hancock's her book on the Sunday program is available now. Link in the show notes as ever. I think we've got room for one more guest, haven't we? David Hamilton is, of course, a radio legend from Radio 1, Radio 2. He joined us on episodes 30 and 40. That was part one and part two of my interview with him. And he joins us now because he also is an author of The Golden Days of Radio 1 and Commercial Radio Days. And we're back to commercials again, aren't we? You can get those books at ashwaterpress.co.uk. But first of all, let's hear from him. Diddy David Hamilton. The first show that I did for the light programme was a show called The Beat Show. And it was from the Playhouse Theatre in Manchester. And it featured the BBC Northern Dance Orchestra and some of the pop groups of the day, people like The Searchers, Wayne Fontana and The Mindbenders. And it was recorded on a Monday night and it went out on Thursday lunchtime. And I introduced it with a phrase that now sounds pretty corny. I said... It's the Beat Show with Bernard Herman and the NDO, the band with the beat that's reaped. Oh, nice. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, it's pretty corny even it then. It works. But it's, uh, yeah, it sounds really corny now. Uh, then I started working for the Light Programme in London. And uh, I was very disappointed when Radio 1 launched uh, and not to get a, a show on there. But I think what happened was that, you know, they just got a lot of the pirates and uh, they signed up the pirates who'd been very, very popular. And I pinched a lot of their audience, of course. So I had to wait until 1973 to get a daily show. Uh, but joining the team of Radio One, which was then the pop music station of the nation in 1973, was really exciting. And it led to doing, you know, things like Top of the Pops. But um, at that particular time, things were very different because pop music at that time appealed to all members of the family. The same people who would sit around the telly on a Thursday night watching Top of the Pops, wondering what was going to be number one that week. And pop music appealed to everybody from grandparents through to grandchildren, unlike today mm. when, you know, it's completely different. So it was a golden era, really. And between um, 70, well, for the people who started at the beginning of, of Radio 1 from 67 to 73, there was no other, apart from Radio Luxembourg mm -hmm. at night, there was no other music station. So they had just an absolute captive audience. I think, was it around that as well? I read somewhat, you hold a record or, or you held a record for the this giant audience that was, because you're on Radio 1 and Radio 2 at, at the same time, is that right? Yes, in 75, uh, Radio 2 chopped the afternoon show. It was an economy move. And uh, for about two and a half years after that, my show was heard on Radio 1 and Radio 2, which gave it an enormous audience. I mean, it's hard to... The BBC's way of calculating audiences was not that reliable at the time. But, um, you know, depending on which newspaper you read, <laughs> it was 17, 18 or 19 million. But, wow. you know, wow. with, with so many radio stations now and uh, mm. the audience is so fragmented, you would never get listening figures like that again. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a different a different time in terms of the fragmentation of it all, of course. But it's um, incredible numbers. And uh, yeah. Uh, those and so you've. I know you've written a couple of books. We've got the Golden Days of Radio One. And I just happen to have them here. Look at this, right on cue. Golden Days of Radio One on the cover there. That was the lineup that I was part of in about seventy-five. And on there you will see um, Ed Stewart, Dave Lee, Travis, Emperor Roscoe, Alan Freeman, John Peel, Johnny Walker, Terry Wogan, Tony Blackburn, 
Noel Edmonds and me. So I was part of a wonderful mm. lineup. I, in the book, I've got a chapter about uh, each of the people on the on the cover there. And the other book which I brought up was this one. This is this is called Commercial Radio Days, D-A-Z-E. Mm. This is more yeah. niche market, I would say. This is very much for radio people. And it's about the um, ups and downs of the commercial radio industry, how, you know, it was much more ruthless than the BBC, uh, where you know, one set of bad listening figures and you could be gone. Is, is there like one show, if you had one one of the shows you've done that you could uh, put into radio heaven or something that you, where just everything's magical, it just seems right? Is, it, is there a, a particular well, I think, time? Uh, I think a programme that meant a lot to me, I live in, in Sussex now, my local BBC station, BBC Sussex and Surrey. And um, in, uh, when was it? Yes, the end of, 19, the end of uh, 2019, um, I did a 60th anniversary program uh, in which I, you know, look back at, at, on some of the people that I'd interviewed and I'd met uh, during my career. And uh, this is this is a real magic of radio story. Uh, there was a chap who contacted me from Germany. He was living in Hamburg and he recorded uh, in 1959 when I, I started on Forces Radio. Uh, the first interview I ever did was with Cliff Richard. I was 20 and he was 18. And uh, this chap, whose name is Axel Rice, uh, he was living uh, somewhere else, not in Hamburg at that time. But uh, he recorded off the radio, or the wireless, uh, as, as we all called it then, this interview with me and Cliff Richard. And he flew over to give me this interview and I played it on the show well the quality wasn't great as you can imagine because it was recorded off the radio but you could hear a very young Cliff Richard and a, a not quite so young David and it was and apparently he went to a Cliff concert and he gave Cliff a copy of it as well so he didn't have the whole interview but he had uh, I think a couple of minutes of it so I included it on that program and um, it was a four-hour show and it was just pure nostalgia I'm guest hosting a show on uh, Radio Surrey. What would your advice be you? to me? How? What's, what wisdom can I glean? And, uh, with Mark, Mark Carter, right? With Mark Carter, yeah. He's a good guy, Mark. You know, he's a good radio man. But you won't go wrong if you're working for him. I've met, like, heroes, I would say, of mine. I've worked with people like David Hamilton, who, going back to when I started out, I was listening to people like David Hamilton or Graham Dean on the radio. And now I have the pleasure of sitting alongside them when they come into this radio station or others, which I'm involved with. And that's a huge honor to, to see that talent alongside me here at the BBC is a fantastic thing. So, so yeah, I mean, I know it's a cliche, but I genuinely love my job and I just hope I can keep going for a bit longer. Well, you interviewed David Hamilton on this podcast and he specified you by name. He said, Mark Carter, lovely fella, loves his radio and clearly... I paid him well for that. You, you know. did, you did. I think, you, I, think you, I think you said one of the most important things there, that you're, and you know that, you're talking to one person. I mean, that mm -hmm. is the joy of radio. It's one-to-one. -one. But I think the other thing is just, you know, be yourself because we're all different. There's no other you you know so just just be you um give them plenty of you and talk to one person and if i can't be a me i'd be david hamilton that's who i would be but there you go thank you so much for, for sparing the time to chat to us uh, really appreciate it and uh we wish you well on on boom radio and all of your radio uh, yes i look, look forward to hearing your bbc sorry
David Hamilton's books are The Golden Days of Radio 1 and Commercial Radio Days. Get those at ashwaterpress.co.uk. Also, the Sunday programme book from Amanda Hancocks and Edward Sturton and the Doctor Who book, Pulled to Open by Paul Hayes. Plus, of course, Ben Baker's book on children's ITV. And my own book, Hark the Biography of Christmas. If any of this episode whets your appetite, there's at least four or five books there that you can delve into, buy it yourself, or put it on your Christmas wish list. Next time, a Christmas special for you here on the British Broadcasting Century podcast, the complete reenactment of the first religious broadcast in Britain, and a bit of an insight, too, into the one that came before it in America. New tales to tell. I think you're going to love it. Whether you're religious or not, join us for the Christmas special, because there's a lot of radio geekery in there that I know you're going to love. If you like the podcast, do share it if you would like. Rate and review us where you found it. That's always welcome and a free way to support the show. You can support us with a few quid as well, of course. Patreon.com slash Paul Carenza. Fiverr a month and you get videos and writings and all sorts of extra things like that. And just know that you are supporting this podcast. One of those few podcasts that's made by just one person. So I would value your support if you are willing and able to do so. Either way, Merry Nearly Christmas. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. This is not a BBC podcast. We're talking about them and not with them. PaulCarenza.com slash old radio has more information on my book, this podcast and my live show. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time for our Christmas special of the British Broadcasting Century.